This is Alfred Hitchcock speaking. In the past, I have given you many kinds of suspense pictures, but this time I would like you to see a different one. The difference lies in the fact that this is a true story, every word of it, and yet it contains elements that are stranger than all the fiction that has gone into many of the thrillers that I've made before. Well, that was the opening monologue from The Wrong Man. And this is a movie directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And he does something in this film that he doesn't do in any of his other movies, which is he has a speaking role. And we can talk a little bit about that uh, in the episode. And, of course, this is part of our Bernard Herrmann Film Festival, and so we'll be talking about his music. And Bernard Herrmann also has a cameo in this film, uh, like right within the first minute of the movie. And this movie was released in 1956 and stars Henry Fonda, Vera Miles, Anthony Quayle, and Harold Stone. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews and look for the logo that's uh, black and white with a film reel on it. Or on the internet, just go to www.classicmoviereviews.net. Or in Facebook, do a search for classicmoviereviews.net, like D-O-T-N-E-T, all spelled out. And you can join us there, and we've been having some great conversations with folks uh, in Facebook the last week. So thank you for all of you that have reached out with some comments and feedback. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from fall-like North Bend today. We've got lots of color on the trees in the backyard. And this is Bob Johnson recording uh, from Los Angeles, where it's also fall weather today. It feels like there should be a football game going on right now. It's cool enough. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock and the Wrong Man. Wow. Warner Brothers released it uh, three days before Christmas in 1956. And this is not exactly what you would want out there for a Christmas movie, I wouldn't think. But it did well in the box office. Probably picked up business after that holiday. Um the music, I, I know I, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but I, I do want to make sure that we cover some uh, time with uh, Bernard Herrmann's musical score because it's quite different from others that we've looked at. But back to Mr. Hitchcock, he did almost 60 films, uh, 11 silent and 48 sounds. He did so many, I won't mention, but just a couple. From 1939, The 39 Steps, and from 1953, I Confess, with Montgomery Clift and Ann Baxter, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, he was nominated for five Academy Award uh, nominations as a director uh, and never won as a director, but some of his films won Best Pictures of the Year, like Rebecca was Best Picture. That's just crazy that he never won an Academy Award. And y- yeah, and yet, his, my mind. and yet his movies, uh, it, Rebecca won in 1940. And uh, yeah, it is, it's odd. Um, I did want to mention, you, you, you said that he was in the opening, kind of a uh, pre-film uh, introduction. Wasn't that dramatic, the way he set that up? Yeah, he's like silhouetted against the spotlight in a soundstage, and you just see the shadow, and then he gives his uh, his introduction. And 
It really reminded me of watching those TV shows because he also had a TV series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I think. Yes, and he oh, would, for sure. He would do a little. He would do a little introduction at the beginning, and I remember watching those shows a lot as a kid. He may have decided after this that that worked so well he was going to do it uh, later when he did other films or television. And the reason or, that he did that, he actually did film a scene in the diner where he was in the background, like kind of his normal uh, cameo without any speaking part. But yes. he took he took it out because he thought that it would be distracting from the story. He really, really wanted this to be as realistic as possible. And I was watching the behind-the-scenes special on the DVD that I got. This was right around the time when a lot of uh, European directors were becoming popular, and it was kind of this new wave of uh, European movies coming in. I think this was around the time that we, we reviewed that movie that was kind of a film noir movie set in France. Rafifi. Rafifi. I think it was right around that time as well. 1955, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And so he, he actually hired a set designer that had worked in Europe and really wanted the set to, to be seen as, as realistic as possible. So we can talk a little bit more about that, but they did a lot of on-location on filming in New York in the winter. Ooh. Everything about uh, his direction of this film uh, reinforces the message of the film, and I, I really think this is a strong message film. I've had to be really careful as I've reviewed it and watched it probably for my fourth or fifth time to not frame it within the context of 2019. So as I looked, as I watched it, I, I was trying to remember what it was like in 1956 and what the political climate was, what the legal climate was. And when, once I got in that mindset, it made the film much more impactful on me because when it came out, it was... It really, in many ways, a documentary, or, or at least a docudrama, about the criminal justice system's impact on this one family. And, and it's an amazing film. I think it's the most politically oriented film that he did. Now, he may not have set out to do that originally, but I think it had an impact on um, the legal system. It was stark in terms of the lack of rights that he had and the lack of like process that they had it was it was really I just felt like I wanted to throw something at the TV because <laughs> yes. it was so frustrating and and uh, which I think is exactly how you were meant to feel uh, I think that's kind of the point um, I, I I learned that Alfred Hitchcock his dad was I forget exactly what his dad did but his dad was uh, friends with somebody in the police force I think wanted to kind of give Alfred a lesson about freedom and, and also what it would be like to be in jail. So he, he had his friend lock him in a jail cell for about five minutes when he was only five years old. That left a huge impact on him. I think that's kind of shows up in this movie about the... You just It just really felt like you were with him on this ride into jail, you know, when they put the handcuffs on him and they loaded him into the, the paddy wagon... And then they unloaded him into the jail. The framing of that and the direction is just so amazing. It really is. And the uh, the black and white photography, the, the uh, real-time feel to it, the on-location filming. And Henry Fonda, he, he was often kind of understated as he performed a character. But in this one, he was very contained and controlled. I mean, he just... At times, he looked like he was overwhelmed by what was going on and didn't quite know what to do. But 
That's just a sign of what a great actor Henry Fonda was. I just wanted to mention that Mr. Fonda had five decades in film and made over 100 films from 1935 to 1981. There are a couple that we probably should add to our list, the Oxbow Incident from 1943 and the uh, Failsafe movie from 1964, which is a really scary film about the Cold War, both of which were done in black and white. He is just an exceptionally strong actor, as was Vera Miles. I think Vera Miles, in many cases, was, I don't know, not, I don't know if she was underrated or, or didn't get the... Uh, notoriety that that she deserved but she was in almost 50 films well and there was a while there like right around this time in her career where she would make one movie with alfred hitchcock and then she went and made another movie with john ford yes <laughs> and then she went back and made another movie with alfred hitchcock and they they had this running joke alfred hitchcock did with her that she'd come back from the movie with making a movie with john ford and he'd walk up to her and kind of pretend to pull a, a piece of straw out of her hair and say what have you been doing it's, that's <laughs> that's so true because the year before she was in the john wayne film the searchers directed by john yeah, the ford searchers, which i would i would love to read that's that another one, one. And, and a favorite of mine and it's it, again not a well-known one i guess with Van Johnson, 23 Paces to Baker Street, 1956. She was a very busy actress, but never really got the notoriety of, say, uh, uh, Susan Hayward or, or Barbara Stanwyck, but just, she was she was perfect. She was so good in this movie. Like, she started off, I made a note here, that she starts off the movie looking so young and happy. They're, they're this sort of happily married couple, even though they don't have a lot of money. They've got two kids. He's a bass player in a in a band at the Stork Club. He works, you know, late into the night, but she's she's she seems perfectly happy with the kind of their life except for the money problems that are kind of coming up because she's got to get her wisdom teeth removed. By the end of the movie, she just looks so beat down and broken. She just looks broken at the end. And she was. It it took 2 years of uh time for her to recover from this well, uh, the the story is really based on the true uh, life uh, drama of Christopher and Rose Balistrero, who lived in, I believe, the Queens uh, of New York City, in the Queens uh, borough. He was, like, like you mentioned, uh, at the Stork Club playing, and they didn't have a lot of money, but they, were, they had a very close family and an extended family that, that came to help as much as they could. And he gets caught in this web of misidentification, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, looking like someone else. And the tragedy of it, he has no defense for quite some time. The, the police question him. They don't really explain what it is they're questioning him about. They ask him if he would cooperate. And, and as a good citizen, he says, certainly I'll cooperate. I don't know what we're doing, but... And then they ask him to go into a, a delicatessen and a, uh, I believe, a dry cleaners. And uh, all these things are going on, and, and no one has given him any clue as to what's going on. That's part of the movie where I wanted to like scream at the at the TV because they're taking him around to go walk into these shops that have been robbed, and then they want the people that work there to see if this is the guy that robbed them. It's so messed up. It is. Because then later they, they bring him in to do a lineup and they ask him, well, do you recognize anybody in this lineup? And of course they pick him out. They just saw him like a few hours ago. The whole tragedy began when he went to the insurance company to see if he could take out a $300 loan against his life insurance so that he'd get 
dental work done for his for his wife. I wonder if you'd look at this policy for me and tell me how much we can borrow on it. Rose Balistrero? Yes, that's my wife. I wonder, uh, could you wait a minute while I check on something? Yes, yes, I'll wait. just unravels on him then and the thing I wanted to mention at this point is the music by Bernard Herman I think adds to the whole the whole drama that's unfolding it's tense at times it, it, it almost says there's danger ahead what's going on it's unsettling impending problems again Bernard Herman had such a, a, an identification with the uh, with the screenplay and the story it's amazing in this film and so different from the others that we've watched it's much more restrained yes and spare and and it just it just rides underneath the the, 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 the storyline and it doesn't seem to intrude very much um, there's when it's when it's kind of unraveling for uh, Manny is his nickname. Manny. Uh, it's it's very insistent and irri irritating at times, and like you said, tense. But then when he's at home with his wife, it's very lyrical. It's very uh, like, it's like this oasis from yes. the, uh, what's going on with the police. Daddy, daddy, hi, dad, dad, hi, daddy, hi. We've all been waiting for you. Could you eat just a bite of something hot? What I want right now. Can I have it later, mom? Of course. I gotta lie down for a while. Well, then that's what you should do. Bye. 
mother tell you what happened to me? No, she didn't. I got arrested for something I didn't do. You don't have to tell me. I heard what they said on the phone. Dad, you're the best dad in the world. I'll do the best I can, Bob. Thanks for telling me. You're the best. Hope you never have to go through anything like I did. But if you ever do, I hope you've got a son just like mine to come back to. I never knew what my boys meant to me till right now. You want to get some sleep now? Yeah. That was something that came out in that um, behind-the-scenes special on the DVD. They were talking about the music and how powerful it was in, in this movie. It was frightening to watch Manny as he was arrested, handcuffed, booked, put in that truck van, taken to an actual, uh, I don't know if it was a prison or a police station or a... No, he was uh, taken to a real jail. A real jail. A jail. That was yeah. the word I was searching for. <clears throat> and he's locked up. And, and when he looks out the, the uh, steel door, that little opening, he looks out of that. It's just, it's heart-wrenching. Oh, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to not only not only is it an amazing scene and it's heart wrenching, but it's technically so awesome how they did that. They they actually filmed through that little that little opening in the door, and they had a wide angle lens on the camera, and then they constructed the the cell behind him in such a way that it it would be distorted to 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 look normal. So it was only five feet deep. That that cell was only five feet deep, and and Henry Fonda had to take these little tiny steps. <laughs> the technique that they used to do that was really cool. And then there was another scene later when he comes home. The camera follows him through the door, and then you hear the door slamming behind him. That was interesting because they actually built the walls of the house to slide on sliders. So they could get the camera th- crew through and follow him into the house because that was all filmed on a soundstage. I, you know, you, you couldn't help but the, feel the uh, fear, the how frightened he would have been by this whole episode. Thank goodness some of his family came through with enough money to get him uh, bail money so that he could get out of the jail. So that scene when he when he gets out, I was like relieved that he was at least free because we know as the viewer. He has not done anything that's illegal or improper. And he's gone through this overnight hell in this place and the noise in the jail and all. Well, and he um, he almost passes out because I think he's just, I think he's in shock at that point. Like all yeah. of it's kind of hitting him at that moment. I was just going to say, I think it hits him before it does his wife. Oh, definitely. So she still seems pretty upbeat and like she still is totally believing him and feeling like there's been this mistake. But then as we sort of get into the stage of the movie where they're gonna, there's going to be a trial and they have to hi- hire a lawyer, she starts to doubt. I think she starts to doubt him a little bit. Yes, that creeps in. There was a quote that I read that it was a moment of distrust that throws Rose into this, this dive. Um, and I just love that, that a moment of distrust. There's just a moment where she goes, well, maybe he did do it. And then that and that was it for her. The last few days, you've, you haven't seemed to care what happens to me at the trial. 
Don't you see? It doesn't do any good to care. No matter what you do, they've got it fixed so that it goes against you. No matter how innocent you are or how hard you try, they'll find you guilty. Well, we're not going to play into their hands anymore. You're not going out. You're not going to the club and the boys aren't going to school. I've thought it all over sitting here. We're going to lock the doors and stay in the house. We'll lock them out and keep them out. Yes, maybe that's the thing to do. We won't go out any more than we have to, but... There's one thing we should arrange, whether Mother comes here or the boys go and stay with her. You want to get the children out of the house because you think I'm crazy, don't you? Don't you? Well, you're not so perfect, either. How do I know you're not crazy? You don't tell me everything you do. How do I know you're not guilty? You could be. You could be. Rose. Rose. You went to the loan company to borrow money for a vacation. You did that when we couldn't afford it. You always wanted to buy things on time. I told you not to. I told you they'd pile up and pile up until we couldn't meet at all. Girls, and honey. it did pile up. And then they reached in from the outside. And they put this last thing on us. And it'll beat us. And you can't win. <gasps> they spoiled your alibi. They'll fix it so that they can smash us. And they will. They'll smash us down. Well, and I, I'll back up for just a second. When they asked, the, when the police asked him to spell or write out this note, and he made the same error in the writing as the real robber, I wondered if she had seen some of that or had some inkling of that and began to doubt as well. I, I don't know. That was not clear in my mind whether she knew that that had happened or not. He had maybe explained it to her, but to me, I think it was. I think it was more just the pressure of of like the police saying that he had done this and then having to go through this process of having to be their own investigators. You know, they had to, they had to go out and find witnesses for themselves and try to figure out if they could put an alibi together. And it was right after they found the second person that they thought could be a witness for them. Cause they had been actually on holiday when one of the robberies had happened and they'd gone out to the country at this inn and he remembered playing cards with three other people. And, you know, they're like, well, if we can just find these three people, they'll corroborate that you were playing cards that night and you couldn't have been at this robbery. But the first person they find is dead. The second person they find has also died. And, and then Rose uh, just crumples. And I think she just starts laughing kind of hysterically, like, this is our alibi. We don't have an alibi. And that was really sad. That was really, that was really, yeah. It was. And that winter scene where they were out at that resort was so desolate. Everything that Hitchcock did in the direction and then the cinematography reinforced the despair and how frightened they had to have been. Well, and that's funny because in that scene, it was super cold. Uh, Hitchcock wouldn't even, didn't even want to get out of the limousine. He told the director of photography that he was talking to, says, well, you know what to do to get it set up. Just let me know when you need me to come up and give direction 
So then he gave the direction, went back to the car, and, and the next day they all got word that they're headed back to Los Angeles to, to finish the movie <laughs> in a soundstage. <laughs> I've had enough yeah. of this. The, the lawyer that came to their defense, played by Anthony Quayle, was, uh, uh, his name in real life was Frank O'Connor. And in the movie, he's, he's not really played up to any degree, but I was reading some backstory information on Frank O'Connor. He was very well-connected to the uh, political process in New York City and had several high-level positions uh, in the uh, New York City governmental structure and, and so forth. And in the movie, he's kind of a neighborhood sort of lawyer that, that really doesn't have a lot of experience in this kind of criminal case. Well, that does it for me, Mr. Ballestrero. I'll take the case. Oh, Mr. O'Connor, how wonderful. There's one difficulty, which it's only fair to mention. I have little experience of criminal cases. I shall be at a disadvantage with a skillful prosecutor. We trust you, Mr. O'Connor, and you trust us. We can't ask for more than that. It's the money problem that... Yeah, well, let's not think about that. Let's just concentrate on winning the case. If we can do that, then the rest will take care of itself. I think the way they set it up in the movie, it makes it more dramatic that uh, Mr. O'Connor is, is kind of taking on the establishment uh, as well as Manny and Rose. I was reading that they left some things out of the re in the movie that were in the real case that pointed more strongly to his innocence, and they did that to, to kind of ratchet up the drama. But there was another comment that I read that says, you know, okay, they took his fingerprints. They had notes from this guy that he'd written, which would have had fingerprints on them. They could have just compared the fingerprints and they would have exonerated him right there. But the, the detective was putting his hands all over the notes. It was like totally destroying the evidence of the fingerprints. And that's so true. And yes, I, I think there were laws that came out later, like the, the Miranda rights uh, that were maybe in response to some things that were happening like in this movie because they never read him his rights they never said you know you can have a lawyer you have the right to remain, remain silent and all that well you uh, you think you're i think it reinforces in my mind how i had to look at this and view it as if i were watching it in uh 1956 or 1957 because not only were some of the laws different then but i think some of the police work that they at least demonstrated in the film, was was uh, almost preordained to find him guilty. Well, yeah, like taking him around and showing him to all the victims, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't go so well in the trial. However, during the trial, a juror's remark is made that it forces the uh, judge to declare a mistrial. And And right now I'm sitting at my desk and I cannot remember what the juror said. Something like, can we just please get on with this? Do we have to sit here and listen to this? Something like that. That was it. Yeah, he was he was fed up with the whole thing. He'd already made up his mind. Yeah. There is a mistrial, but it's not over by any means. And uh, now they have to wait, uh, await a second trial. Yeah, which was really interesting. So one of the things that I learned as I was researching on this movie is that there's a lot more emphasis on his religion and the Catholic symbolism in this movie than in other Hitchcock movies because he's allowed to keep his rosary when he goes into the jail cell. And then there's that 
pivotal scene in the court in the court where he's got the rosary in his hand and then he comes home and he's talking to his mom and he's and he's just so down and he's just feeling so defeated and his mom is like I think I could have stood it better if they'd found me guilty it's like being put through a meat grinder once isn't enough they got to do it to you again I brought it all on myself though I've been such an idiot you'd all be better off without me none of it is your fault Manny You've just had a lot of bad breaks that can happen to anybody. Yeah, what can I do? Have you prayed? Yes. What did you pray for? I prayed for help. Pray for strength, Manny. I don't see how anything can help if I don't get some luck. Somebody committed those holdups. Where is he? Maybe in jail already for some other crime in some other state. Maybe, well, he'll never be suspected for anything he committed in our neighborhood. My son, I beg you to pray. Got to go to work. Basically, he goes back to his room and, and he's looking at this painting of Jesus. And there's this really, really cool, like, fade from that scene to a street scene where we see the actual... Uh, the actual criminal who's been doing these robberies. And it, I don't know what Hitchcock is trying to say there other than maybe uh, that his faith was a real part of him being able to get through this situation. It really does come through. And, and, and on top of that, his wife is just continuing her downward spiral when he finally realizes that uh, because of the work of Dr. I think it's Benet, by, played by Werner Kempler, Kemperer, that he's going to have to put her into some intensive uh, therapy and and uh, care because she's just not she's just not coping with things. And you mentioned in your email yesterday to me that that scene when he takes her out to the uh, to the hospital is just is frightening and sad. And again. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now because I think it's just chilling. And if you really put yourself in his position or even, you know, try to put yourself in her position, it's it's just like the end of the world for him. And he even says, like, I don't know what to do without you. You are my whole world. And the kids are praying every night for you and they're just praying for you to come home. And she just can't, you know, she's just not in a place where she can respond the way that he needs her to. She's really shut down. Um, and really, uh, he and, and uh, uh, Manny and Rose have uh, his mama, Mama Balastrero, and, uh, and three or four other family members, but it was frighteningly isolating, I would think. They have very little money. Thank goodness Anthony Quill took the case on, uh, Frank O'Connor, and kind of dismissed the fact of, of the cost. He said, we'd take care of that later. I mean, they were really pretty much on an island by themselves. Yeah, I, I just thought this movie was really scary because I thought it was so real. And I just thought that I could see how this would happen. And I think, although we're we're trying not to frame this up in modern times, there are still instances where there are things like this happening. And it's just scary. And certainly in other countries around the world where there's less freedom, things like this are happening for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
I wondered if his Italian heritage played into it. Like if, if there was some kind of profiling going on uh, with the police in, in that way. It just was a question mark I had. Uh, I just think it was a, a blanket sort of indictment of what was going on then in the, uh, in the procedures that were followed. I, I did want to mention a counterpoint in a little way, and that is that his employer, the store club, stood by him through the whole thing. I'd forgot I'd forgotten to mention true, that, and true. thank goodness for that. Well, and his friends, and his like you said, his family's his family came through, and his friends came through with money. Seventy five hundred dollars back then for bail—that's a ton of money. I, I didn't convert it into the day, but it would be several thousands more. The camera work. So when Manny first gets to jail, there's this really cool scene where he's leaning against the wall, but the camera is going around almost like in a carousel. Yes, that had to be going on in his mind. And yeah, I think it kind of gave you that sense that he just felt like he was drowning or you know spinning out of control. And the camera work in this movie inspired Martin Scorsese in Taxi Driver, the camera work in Taxi Driver. And Bernard Herrmann was also involved in the scoring of Taxi Driver. So there's a little connection there. And then just kind of a, this, this is something I found as I was doing some deeper research into the movie. This is Harry Dean Stanton's first film. It's his film debut, and he was an alien as one of the, the minors in Alien. And I'm going to see Alien in the theater, so yes. <laughs> there's another weird connection. There's another connection. And then there were a couple of uh, future well-known actors, Tuesday Weld and uh, another, uh, Bonnie Franklin, I think. They played uh, teenagers and they made their film debut as two girls answering the door when the Ballesteros are seeking witnesses to prove their uh, his innocence. Oh, I remember that. The, the yeah. film ends with his acquit. I mean, they, they they exonerate him. I mean, they say, "Yo," but but the the the, the last scene when that when that's taken place, I, there were a couple things that were really made me angry. One was the guy that they arrested for the the, the real robber uh, named Daniel, played by Richard Robbins, and Honda look a lot alike. And Henry Fonda says to him, "Do you realize what you've done?" And the guy just is totally not interested in hearing it. And then the other thing is there were two women that had testified that they believed that mm-hmm. Fonda was the guilty party. One of them is sort of trying to say how sorry she is. And the other one just walks by like, well, I'm not going to look at him at all. She realized she realized what it, it was no remorse. I just wish that they had had the courage to say, I'm sorry, you know, but they just, they just couldn't work that up. And, but I also thought it was super weird. This is another thing that I don't think would happen today is that they, they walked that guy, the real robber, Daniel, right past uh, Henry Fonda's character, that and they could exchange words. Great for dramatic effect, but I don't think that that would have happened. In yeah, I, I agree. It does add to the drama of the film, though. And I would just say that I gave this film a 10 all the way around. There's nothing about this film that would make it other than an exceptional film for me because of what it portrayed. It's so strange for me because I, I had like really low expectations for this movie going in because it just it honestly didn't sound that interesting to me. And, and I'd never heard of it really before, which is kind of unfortunate since we've been doing a lot of Hitchcock movies. Now that I've watched it and I've read about it and watched the behind the scenes thing, I've, I'm absolutely loving this movie and I would give it a 10 as well. I think it's it's really different than a lot of or most of Hitchcock's movies and, and even the music is, is different. 
but it's just exactly what this story needed. He just is so good at putting a, the, the movie together in the way that it needs to be put together to have that impact. And I just loved it. I, I would recommend it for anyone to watch, along with another Hitchcock movie from 1953, I Confess, mm-hmm. yeah. which which is in black and white and, and uh, is very dramatic and, and, and talks about uh, the... the uh, the privilege of, of the religious confessional, it's, it's, it's really excellent. Continuing our next uh, film in the Bernard Herrmann Film Festival, it's our last one. It's going to be Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah, we gave a little bit of a preview of that music in previous episodes, but again, it kind of gets back to the more dramatic, big, epic sound that he's had in some of his other movies, um, which is really different than the spare, restrained approach that he took to this one it is i was watching it just a couple of days ago and there was a part of the the music that reminded me of the music that he did for garden of evil totally yep which is why i put that little thing at the end of the last episode because i I, i'm desperately wanting to see uh that movie where they discover the lost world (laughs) (laughs) i that was great yes i could see that done in the hands of a of a Steven Spielberg or someone like that, they'd, it would be like a blockbuster. Yeah, totally. It really would. <laughs> be, it, it would be like uh, a Western meets Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you know what? You, you, you totally nailed it when you figured out who the lead was in the Valley of the Guanji. That was totally him. You, it was the guy from uh, It Came From Outer Space. Oh, Richard Carlson. Yeah, Richard Carlson is the lead in <laughs> Valley of the Guanji. <laughs> You said, because you, you said, I wouldn't be surprised if it was him, and it, and it was. <laughs> yeah, I, it just reinforces how many B-movies I've seen on Double Feature Saturday. Oh, man. Uh, what a great childhood that must have been. <laughs> <laughs> no regrets, except for too much candy. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was uh, The Wrong Man, and coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching. released in 1953 and stars Harry Fonda and Vera Miles along with Anthony Quayle and Harold Stone and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net I have one I I have to interrupt you had the date incorrect and his first name incorrect you had Harry Fonda in 1953. You want to start? It's 50. Oh. <laughs> it's Henry Fonda, and it was released in 1956. Oh my gosh! Okay, I'm looking at I'm looking at all the wrong things okay. on my on, <laughs> on my page. I, I was going to let it go, again. and then I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> that's all wrong. That's the wrong information for the wrong man. 